1: When emergency legislation shuttered businesses across the province, restaurants and the people who run them and work in them were among the hardest hit. And while retail and other businesses began to return, food service still faces serious limitations. Now, with cases spiking and the end of patio season approaching, what are their prospects for survival? Let's ask. In St. Catharines, Ontario, Tamara Jensen, she is co-owner of the restaurant Dispatch, and in leslieville in toronto's east end john sonopoli executive chef and owner of the Ascari hospitality group and we are delighted to welcome you to Two tvo tonight john good to see you again you were on a few months ago and i just want to to set up our discussion here tonight uh throw a few facts at uh at you folks who know them all too well and our viewers and listeners to get everybody up to scratch here so sheldon if you would let's bring up this graphic uh, will restaurants survive this pandemic here we go one out of every five jobs lost due to the pandemic was in food service one out of every five lost jobs in ontario there are still 100,000 jobs that existed in february that have not come back an estimated 10 percent of food service businesses across canada have already permanently closed due to the impacts of the pandemic and most are still losing money and expect the fall months to be much worse than the summers Okay, John, as I indicated, uh, you were on just a few months ago uh, telling us about how you were pulling out all the stops in order to try to innovate to keep your businesses going and your people employed. Uh, Bring us up to date from when you were on back then. How are things going now?
0: Well, now is the most critical time as we've, you know, really done our best to Uh, keep engaged with our clients and our customers through patio service and through online events and and, uh, online retail and in-store retail as well. But uh, as the colder weather approaches and people's appetite for coming indoors uh, is still mitigated by the pandemic, uh, you know, we're now at risk of a complete catastrophe in the industry.
1: How do you define complete catastrophe?
0: Well, you know, we've already lost 10 to 25% of the restaurants shuttered for good. Um, One could argue that the strongest have survived through this so far. But it doesn't matter how strong you are, uh, at 50% of your capacity, you cannot pay your bills in our industry. Our margins don't allow for that. Uh, You know, we need aid from the federal government that is long lasting and changes in policy to liquor laws from the provincial government that are permanent so that we can have a business model that allows us to survive. Hmm. So, I mean, we're talking about 50 to 60 percent failure rate in the next two months as patios close. That's a catastrophe. Hmm.
1: Tamara, I know some people in Toronto like to think of themselves as the center of the universe, but uh, you and I both know there's a lot of Ontario outside Toronto, and you're part of that, and that's why we wanted to have you on the program. So you're in St. Catharines in the Niagara Peninsula, and let's just start with this. Uh, who are your customers under normal cir- normal circumstances?
2: So normally our customers um, are driven quite a bit by tourism. So we're, uh, or we were, a very much a destination restaurant. Um, we actually were only a year old when everything shut down in March. But in that year, we got some recognition nationally um, that brought in a lot of guests from upstate New York and all over Ontario, different provinces. So we weren't really a neighborhood restaurant. We relied a lot on tourism, which many businesses in Niagara do.
1: All right. So the border's closed now. What has that done to your business if a good chunk of your customers used to come from upstate New York?
2: Well, what we're seeing in Niagara is the the folks that are going out and frequenting restaurants tend to be on the younger side. They tend to be more of, you know, the patio drinking crowd. Um, As a fine dining restaurant, that hasn't typically been our clientele. So we have tried to pivot to a more casual model. We have our patio service going. Uh, we're focusing on some really unique wines and cocktails. We've completely changed our menu to be you know, smaller plates and just a little more casual than what we were pre-COVID. Um, so we've had to shift basically our model and, and put the effort into attracting a whole different clientele now.
1: But do I assume that all those people who might have come in from... Buffalo or Lackawanna or Seneca, they're not coming anymore, I guess.
2: Yes, absolutely. And uh, not for the foreseeable future, obviously.
1: Hmm. Now, uh, one does notice when one walks around the downtown of Toronto and other places as well that, uh, you know, the patios have really been extended right out into the street. They have taken out lanes of traffic. The patios are expanded. And, um, you know, uh, very often you see them quite full uh, here in the capital city. What's your experience with that in the Niagara Peninsula?
2: Uh, So we're in downtown St. Catharines, so we are in more of the, the, you know, the more populated area of Niagara, Um, but we're not quite in the entertainment hub of our city. We're a little bit down the street in an arts district, so our city has created uh, a road closure that, um, you know, really supports the restaurants. They're out on the streets with their patios. We've built a patio on the street in front of our restaurant. We're fortunate to have that space. Um, But we're actually, in a sense, competing now with the city's marketing dollars to attract local customers to our restaurant down the street. So it's been a bit tricky uh, in our case, but we have a very supportive community. We collaborate a lot with arts organizations, nonprofits and just other businesses at our end of the street. John,
1: what's your experience at your places with expanded patio service?
0: yeah i mean it it was good and it was expensive so we we uh, were able to build a patio where patios didn't exist before at one of our restaurants we were able to expand existing patios at other at the other two locations uh given the the new regulations by the city as well as with very amenable and agreeable landlords so that was very helpful um but it costs a lot of money you know that construction is a lot of money the 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 umbrellas the heaters the chairs all those things cost thousands of dollars we wouldn't normally have to spend all to just kind of build up to 50 60 percent of our normal sales so we're really spending a lot for very little and basically keeping alive due to the wage subsidy and other government programs that have existed up to now Um, but as we move forward into the fall and those uh Programs have their horizon uh, a, a very, very in the near future. Um, it's not looking good. So we need governments now to understand that there is going to be the most crucial part of um, crucial time for the industry, and we need them to create programs to reflect the length of recovery necessary, as well as the scope of support that's needed.
1: Well, you've got two obvious things about to happen, I gather. You've got these government programs that are going to come to an end or be phased out, replaced by something potentially, but we'll see. And then, of course, it's going to get cold. So what's that going to do to your patio business?
0: Yeah, well, patio business is already on the decline. Every cold, every night that gets cooler, we see the patio business ending earlier in the evening with some people feeling comfortable to come inside and some people not. You know, we have very, very stringent uh, best-in-class protocols and uh, cleaning uh, protocols for inside our restaurant. So we do our best to make our customers and our clients feel safe as do many thousands of restaurants across the province. But there are people who are not comfortable coming inside yet and that's understandable. And so our business is literally taking a 20
1: to 30% drop every time we have a cool night. Hmm. Tamara, are you able to get heaters that are big enough in order to encourage people to continue to come to your patios?
2: Uh, we aren't. We're seeing, um, actually, you know, in different industry groups, people messaging, "Where can I find a patio heater? They're sold out everywhere." We're seeing Toronto restaurants, you know, come down and shop at the Canadian Tire and Welland to try to find one patio heater. It's been very difficult. Um, you know, as a group, we've decided it's probably not even worth the investment for the next few weeks to try to extend that patio season. Um, and so we've we're just going back and forth about if and when we feel comfortable reopening for indoor service, what we're hearing from our clientele is that they're not ready, uh, which makes me very nervous. Um, But we will see as things cool down, um, and obviously we do have all of the safety protocols in place, hopefully we can still generate some revenue of some sort.
1: (laughs) Well, John, let me put that to you, because actually, if I read the weather forecast properly, we're supposed to get pretty spectacular weather given the time of year we're in uh over the next week or so uh how does that figure in your
0: yeah it figures strongly so we, we, like you know we were making the same kind of uh calculations as Tamara and her group were and you know her weather might be slightly different in St. Catharines but for us because we're close to buildings in downtown We made the calculation that investing in powder heaters was definitely the way to go for us, especially given that all of our competition around us is doing the same. Um, The warm weather coming ahead for the next week is a godsend. Uh, We're we're very grateful for it, but we know that that's a finite um, kind of situation and it's basically a mirage that is slowly disappearing and we need um, those who control public policy to make sure that we are in a position as good operators, as contributors to GDP, as employers of many, many vulnerable people, that we are able to survive the winter and keep our our uh, employees attached to our business. Otherwise, we have no way to relaunch. Um, so, you know, provincially that takes a different form. Provincially, that takes the form of you know uh, good rent policy, which means a ban on commercial evictions through the winter. It also takes a form of allowing us to improve our margins. By changing the liquor laws and regulations. So, you know, Ontario is the only jurisdiction, maybe with Quebec, in the Western world that requires its wholesale purchasers of alcohol to buy at retail prices. So, I don't know if everyone in the public knows this, but restaurants buy liquor, wine, and beer at the same price or more that they do in the LCBO. Um, and that's because we pay the retail liquor tax. Uh, and then we're expected to resell it at a profit. So we need the government to change that policy just like BC did uh, uh, recently, they changed their policy they they're giving their all of their licensee purchasers a twenty percent discount. Uh, that would change our margins immensely and really like give us the the breathing room we need um, if we're doing any sales at all to actually pay our employees and pay our suppliers.
1: So just so I'm clear, you would like you would like a discount, to purchase from the LCBO or you would like to be able to purchase directly from the manufacturer?
0: No, so, and the way it works in Ontario is, when you purchase alcohol, it all goes through the LCBO, not the store, but the LCBO distribution center. So all all alcohol in Ontario gets taxed by the provincial government. Um, And if I'm a licensee and I'm buying either retail or on consignment, I pay those taxes. When you purchase as a licensee, you pay a different kind of code of tax than the retail, but the numbers equal the same, or actually sometimes 6% more. So what we're asking is for, a discount on licensee purchases. So if I buy alcohol for my restaurant to sell, we need to have prices that reflect that we're a wholesale purchaser of alcohol and we spend millions and millions of dollars on liquor every year. And why are we still paying the same as someone who goes in and buys a bottle of Canadian Club at the liquor store? It doesn't make any sense. Um, But because of the monopoly of the provincial system, they've been doing this for years and we've just been living with it. Well now we can't live with it. We need a, a proper system that reflects the amount of alcohol we spend and it reflects the jobs that we provide to good Ontarians on a
1: day-to-day basis. Understood. Okay. Uh, John and Tamara, thank you for that, you know, rubber, where the rubber really hits the road view of things. Uh, I'd like to introduce um, another voice to our conversation now who will help us uh, sort of get a bigger picture from 30,000 feet in the air, as we like to say. So we uh, welcome from Don Mills, Ontario in the capital city's North End, Rafael Gomez, who's a professor with the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the University of Toronto. He's the author of a book called Small Business and the City. And, Rafael, it's good to welcome you back to TVO, where you've been a guest numerous times. I wonder if we could start with this. You know, no one would be asking any questions if you were asking, what's the significance of the auto industry to Ontario, or what's the significance of the forestry industry in the north to Ontario? Uh, but I'm not sure people know what the significance of the restaurant industry is to the provincial economy. So fill in yeah. the blanks. What is it?
3: Yeah, it's, it's huge. And I think one of the reasons why we don't know is because, you know, the old phrase that came very popular after the global financial crisis, too big to fail. It's unfortunate, but the restaurant sector, because it's made up of largely small independent businesses, it's almost too small to save that's not true, by the way. It, it, we have to save that sector for a variety of reasons, which I can, we'll get into, or we've probably mentioned some already. Um, and that's a fundamental problem of the sector. It's, it's a highly competitive sector. In economics, we, we use the term monopolistic competition, meaning if you're a local restaurant on a corner, you have the monopoly on that corner and people will go to you. But in a sense, there's a lot of choice that people have as well. Next door, there's probably another restaurant that's serving something else. We enjoy that variety, we benefit from it as a society. And I think that's partly the both the strength and the weakness of the sector. In good times, that vibrancy, that dynamism, a restaurant might sadly close, but a new one enters. That dyna- dynamic system without much government support, when you hit a crisis like this, it, it actually has a huge impact. And you know, we have tons of people who work in the sector, both as a profession and as a staging ground to gain Sometimes valuable work experience. So our our younger uh, workers that enter the labor force often find a foothold in the labor market. But also people can have careers in this in this sector. So it is a vital sector. It has a huge impact, by the way, on our quality of life and our health and well-being. So if you close down that sector, as public health uh, officials have been mentioning, you have a whole set of social determinants of health that actually start to weaken, right? In neighborhoods, you pull out a a cornerstone restaurant where people meet and gather, and it's, uh, it's tough going for that neighborhood. So yeah, in part, the reason why the auto industry gets a lot of attention is it's more consolidated. It's more organized. It has large unions. It has a few large employers that can effectively lobby government. And unfortunately, the restaurant sector lags because of its structure.
1: So is that to say that because of the nature of the way the restaurant business operates in our economy, it, yeah. it, it, is, um, it is by its nature, yes, more susceptible to pandemic problems, that kind of thing?
3: I, I think so, but it doesn't have to be that way. We, we can always take these moments to reimagine and reconfigure the sector. For example, in countries, we'll just take two that are in continental Europe, Germany and Sweden, they have slightly different models. In Sweden, it's a highly organized society. It's very competitive, very dynamic economy but it has high levels of unionization that penetrate everywhere, not just in auto, but in sectors like restaurants. Most restaurants have a union and a collective agreement. Now, you say, well, that could harm businesses, right? Not really, because it gets to the point made earlier. Good businesses want to keep their workers attached, and you want to train, and you want to create a whole cycle of of promotion and keep the labor and capital relationship going. So in Sweden, they managed to have – more voice, political voice, almost as much as larger sectors like auto. And in Germany, they use a slightly different model, whereas they take the whole sector and say, well, we're not gonna apply a common labor standard to each sector because each sector is different. So what we'll have is sectoral bargaining. So in the same way that Ontario has employment standards law, it seemingly is is sort of built for everyone, but then for no one, because everyone wants to claim exemptions because the labor law doesn't fit them. In Germany, what you'd have is the restaurant sector bargaining a set of employment conditions for those workers and that industry. And it it doesn't have to just be in labor, it can be with regards to other aspects of public policy, like the one just mentioned regarding alcohol sales. It's clearly unfair, has been for a long time. It wasn't noticed when there were good times and the restaurant sector was booming, but you get hit with one of these shocks and it's evident that the sector therefore needs a little more organization, a little more structure and a little more support. Um, at the industry level. So you need a strong industry association. And I think you need partners with workers. And I think we have to start looking at different models in which workers can be a little more organized, a little more protected.
1: Uh, okay, well, let me put that to Tamara. You, you, you've heard what uh, Professor Gomez has had to say about that. Um, I mean, to the best of my knowledge, people who get into the restaurant business do so, not because they expect to make a fortune, but because, uh, you know, it's in their bones. This is what they do. This is what they love to do. Uh, the margins are small and... Um, you know, you've just heard, you've you've heard a very different alternative future put forward by Professor Gomez there. Uh, how does it strike you?
2: Uh, personally, I love the idea of the alternative future. Um, at Dispatch, we are uh, a certified living wage employer. We do not operate with the tipped uh, minimum wage model, which is unique in our industry. Um, it's very, very important to us that our team is paid as professionals. They're paid fairly. They're paid equitably. Um, we see a lot of times that, you know, certain groups of hospitality workers can leave at the end of the day with a lot of cash, while their coworkers are struggling to make ends meet. Um, and so the equity piece of that is huge. But just in general, um, it would be amazing for our industry to be more unified, more united, and have more power, so that as a restaurateur, we can actually charge enough to have a sustainable business that pays our staff fairly, that pays our suppliers fairly, and that feeds the whole production and supply chain. Um, you know, in Niagara, we're surrounded by wineries who are struggling and um, you know, addressing the taxation issues would be huge for that sector as well. Hmm. So it's all interconnected. Um, and our point of view is that we, we want to do everything that we can to make not just our business sustainable, but to make the whole industry sustainable. And as it stands now, when restaurateurs try to, you know, charge enough to survive, the public perception is that they're being greedy, they are, you know, not trying to save and provide value. And so having, uh, giving more power to our industry would go a long way with strengthening things so that if and when we are faced with another disaster such as COVID, um, we're a little bit stronger to get through.
1: John, what's your read on that? Yeah, I,
0: I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, this crisis has obviously uh, peeled back the layers that ex- and expose a lot of the dysfunction in our industry. A lot of uh ways not only in which the industry is treated but as tamara mentioned as a, a large sector of our employees have been have been treated uh, based on the the problems in the system in which we we work um, we need to fix all of that it's it's a huge undertaking and it's even more challenging during a pandemic. You know we're focused on making sure that we get through this so that we can make these changes. We've begun to make some of these changes in our own company, as Tamara has uh, in hers. Uh, It's important that your team and your staff know that you are on their side all the time. And and, uh, at the same time, if you're not around to do it in in the spring, uh, it'll be all for naught. So um, I think that. You know, we need to make sure as a group we continue to put pressure on the government to change policy that will support us at the same time showing them that we are a mature, uh, productive, grown up industry where we treat our teams properly and we, um, you know, are productive members of the economy. And we're not just fly-by-night neighborhood restaurants. Like, you know, just because, you know, Tamara and her partner have a 50-seat restaurant in Angra, it doesn't mean they're not as effective to their local economy in developing GDP and developing a community as a huge restaurant group in Toronto. Um, and I think that that's the challenge of their industry. We have ninety thousand CEOs across the country instead of five. And yeah. uh, you know that uh, at creating structure to organize that many individuals is a massive challenge.
1: Well, Tamara, I wonder if you know, uh, I'll, I'll come back to that expression that um, that Rafael Gomez just used a little while ago. It's not that you're too big to fail. It's that you're too small to save. there are There are so many of you out there. And it's not like government can just go and and sort of purchase a a piece of the action as the way they could in GM or Chrysler's case. Uh, With 90,000 restaurants out there, the government's not going to go out and buy 90,000 restaurants. But I wonder if you can make the case, you know, somehow coffee shops, a bunch of them, made the case to the public that it's actually worth spending six bucks for a cup of coffee because look at the atmosphere, look at the ambiance, look at this, it's become a meeting place. And I wonder if you can make the same case to your customers that uh, it's worth spending more money to come and patronize our restaurant because of the way we treat our people, because of the atmosphere, because of, because of, because of. What do you think?
2: Absolutely. And, you know, our team does a fantastic job of that already. And our guests are incredibly supportive and we couldn't be more appreciative of that. Um, But it goes beyond us. There's always... You know, there's the Tim Hortons down the street. There's the cheaper eats models that are very accessible and very available. Um, So that's always going to be kind of a a struggle. Um, I always like to say that for some reason, the restaurant industry is treated as uh, every option is kind of comparable. But if you look at any other consumer experience, for example, retail fashion, it's quite clear that. You know, a, a $6 sweater is different from an ethically sus- sustainable, uh, handmade kind of garment. Um, so it's something that our industry has struggled with for hundreds of years, basically, is conveying that value. Um, so it's something that we've thought about quite a bit. Prior to COVID, we operated largely as a tasting menu experience. And so our customers would pay one fee, come in and have that experience. And it wasn't just a price next to a menu item. Uh, Something that we find is when you look at a menu and see that, you know, a steak is $45. As a consumer, you think, well, I could just go to the grocery store and buy a steak and prepare it for much less than that. But the messaging needs to be that restaurants aren't just about a piece of food on a plate. It's about the professionalism. It's about the ambiance, the experience, um, the music, the decor. The location, all of those things go into a dining experience, um, and so I think personally, as a communications professional, I think a lot of it comes down to the messaging, and even right now, the messaging that uh, is pretty prevalent—that you know, tipping generously will help the restaurant industry. The reality is, is that tipping generously does help a segment of the restaurant industry, but it doesn't ensure that those restaurants will be around to employ the servers that you're tipping generously. Understood. So the messaging, yeah, should be should be different.
1: Okay, we're down to our last couple of minutes here. And Raphael, let me get you to gauge in your view how useful slash helpful you think uh, the government's federal and or provincial mm-hmm. response to helping this sector so far has been.
3: Well, it's like I said, I think the, the sector has missed a lot of um, attention from government. And I think they've been sort of sidelined and I think it's it's sad because as we learned more about this, this uh, virus and the pandemic and how it spreads, actually the restaurant sector uh, could be a vital role in returning us to some version of normalcy and actually could have a very powerful and positive uh, health benefit. And we talk about social determinants of health. That's an area that public health uh, professionals talk about, less so the medical profession, which kind of looks at the intricacies of the virus and what it does to us. And I think the preponderance of public policy attention has been veered towards the medical model, protecting our hospitals. But look what happened in that kind of version of sort of staving off the virus. We left unprotected, they are care homes. In the same way, we need a more public health lens that looks at the totality of what brings us health and well-being. Restaurants play a vital role. Our main streets and the businesses that inhabit it there are reasons why we have healthier cities and healthier populations. If you do it in a structured way, knowing how the virus can spread amongst people, um, and your staff are checked. This is a way in which we can preserve the public space and socialization, which is critical to maintaining our health as a society. So I think the restaurant sector, if it had this more organized pre-pandemic, more organized voice that had a voice for labor, had a voice for, for the restaurant owners, it could have kind of made the case and perhaps aligned itself with those other other voices. It's still not too late. I think we are learning more and more that actually structured environments are actually better places for us to spend our time. Uh, it's a safer place. Uh, and I think that's where we need to pivot, to use the, uh, the word of the, of the COVID um, 2020 uh, epidemic. If we could pivot that way, this would actually help the restaurant sector. It would bring to light the importance of the sector in terms of its employment. It regenerates so much money locally because who does the local restaurant employ to do their accounting? A local accountant. And who would do their legal service? A local legal uh, professional. It's a really resilient um, um, sector for local economies. And just one last piece, Van City from out in uh, Vancouver, which is a a credit union, a local credit union that invests in in local communities. They did a study across Canada of several neighborhoods. And what they found is the neighborhoods that have been most resilient. So we talk about sustainability, but a resilient uh, neighborhood, have been ones that focused on their local populations. In other words, the restaurants didn't even have to move to a, a real fancy online model. They could take orders over the phone. People did those, those pickups. Those neighborhoods, which often weren't the most affluent, actually survived better than areas that were dependent on, we'll say, tourism, right? And uh, that was a fragile sector. And when you stopped cross-border travel, a lot of those restaurants on those areas of, the, of different cities really suffered. But the ones that were tied to their local community actually didn't do too bad. So maybe a
1: long-winded answer, but I think it's a positive one. If, if we can get the sector's voice heard a little more, more loudly. Understood. Uh, Tamara Jensen, John Sinopoli, Rafael Gomez, great of all of you to spend some time with us on TVO tonight, and in particular to John and Tamara. Good luck out there, okay? Thank you, Steve. Thank you.